Hello and welcome to Access, a podcast about abortion. I'm your host, Garnet Henderson. On December 1st, the Supreme Court heard arguments in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. This is the Mississippi abortion case that is a direct challenge to Roe versus Wade. I traveled from my home in New York down to Washington, D.C. to be there in person. Not a lot of people are allowed inside the court right now because of COVID protocols. So I listened to oral arguments on the live stream like most other people. But I was really there to see what was going on outside. Because when the Supreme Court hears a major case like this, people show up. This episode is mostly about that experience and about the Mississippi case. But you may have heard there was some big news from the Supreme Court recently regarding SB8, the near-total abortion ban in Texas. So I'm going to explain that briefly, and then we'll get back to Dobbs. This is just a quick and dirty summary. We have covered SB8 in much greater detail in previous episodes. So if you're feeling a little lost, go back and listen to our bonus episode with Julia Kay from the ACLU, our SB8 fact check episode, and episode 12, which breaks down all of the abortion-related cases before the Supreme Court this term. The Supreme Court was asked, on an emergency basis, to decide whether two separate legal challenges to SB8 could move forward, not to decide whether SB8 is constitutional, just to determine who can challenge it, and how, in federal court. Oral arguments were on November 1st, and despite this being an emergency matter, the court didn't rule until December 10th. The ruling was mixed, but for Texans who need abortions, it was mostly bad news. For starters, the court dismissed a lawsuit from the federal government against Texas. That case is pretty much dead. They did rule that a challenge from Texas abortion providers and advocates can go forward, but only in a limited way. In this case, which is called Whole Woman's Health versus Jackson, abortion providers were suing all of the state court judges and clerks in Texas, because these are the people who would preside over the vigilante lawsuits encouraged by SB 8. But they did also sue the Texas Medical Board and some other state licensing agencies, because these bodies could take disciplinary action against abortion providers who violate SB 8. This is the only part of the abortion provider's lawsuit that the Supreme Court allowed to go forward. In other words, they ruled that abortion providers cannot sue the judges and clerks, only the licensing bodies. This dramatically narrows the scope of the case. It means that even if abortion providers win, they won't be able to stop private citizens from filing vigilante lawsuits. Abortion providers had also asked for the case to be sent back to the federal district court judge. Instead, the Supreme Court sent it back to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, a court notorious for its hostility to abortion rights. Finally, for the third time, the Supreme Court had an opportunity to block SB 8, and it declined to do so. This is complicated stuff, but the gist is that the Supreme Court is allowing this fight to drag out all while people in Texas need abortions and can't get them. It's impossible to predict the future, but it's also impossible not to feel that this is an ominous sign. The fact that the Supreme Court was even willing to take on Dobbs, the Mississippi case, which involves a 15-week abortion ban, is a clear indicator that they're willing to reevaluate Roe. And the fact that they've allowed a six-week abortion ban to stay in effect shows that this court may not care about its own precedent at all. Now back to my trip to D.C. On the morning of December 1st, I got to the Supreme Court bright and early, around 7.30 a.m. 
Capitol Police had blocked off the big steps leading up to the Supreme Court with metal barricades, so all the pro- and anti-abortion demonstrators were gathered on the sidewalk and in the street in front of those steps. Activists from the organization Shout Your Abortion kicked off the morning by taking abortion pills that they had ordered from Aid Access in front of a big banner that said, We are taking abortion pills forever. Starting shortly thereafter was a rally organized by a coalition of 117 reproductive rights and justice organizations. They've united around a single message. Liberate abortion. But the anti-abortion demonstrators got there early, too. One particularly loud group with megaphones and huge graphic signs set themselves up so they'd be front and center in a lot of the photos and videos taken of the crowd. They spent most of their time screaming at the pro-abortion demonstrators. All of this reminded me of episode five, when I spoke with abortion clinic escorts and defenders. This is the kind of stuff they hear every day. Personal insults, false and disparaging claims about abortion and people who have abortions, and threats. A warning that this next clip is graphic and includes threats of violence. If you don't want to hear it, please skip ahead 30 seconds. If you're so pro-abortion, let's just perform these procedures on you. Shall we rip your arms off? At several points, pro-abortion demonstrators surrounded this loud and angry group to block their signs and drown them out with chants. But it wasn't just this one group. Anti-abortion demonstrators were also having their own competing rally right next to the Liberate Abortion rally. In fact, by late morning, their crowd had swelled to be substantially larger than the pro-abortion crowd, thanks in part to dozens of students bussed in by Liberty University, an evangelical school. However, the anti-abortion crowd thinned out in the early afternoon, whereas the Liberate Abortion rally kept going strong until almost 2 p.m., I spent most of my time at the rally walking around and talking to people, and I want you to hear from them. If you've been listening to this show for a while, I'm sure you'll recognize some of these voices. And just remember, this was December 1st, so the Supreme Court had yet to issue its decision about SB 8. Yeah. My name is Kelsey Ryland. I am the Federal Strategies Director at All Above All, and I'm here for so many reasons. Uh, this is such an important day for our movement, um, for people who've had abortions, for people who are going to need abortions in the future. And, you know, these um, protests can be tense, but I'm always so, like, touched and overwhelmed by the love and joy on our side. Did you expect this big of a presence of antis today? I did. I mean, I, I think that the antis see this as their, um, as their moment. Um, and uh, like I said earlier, I think it's just really striking to see the difference in the tone of our sides. Um, what I know is that regardless of what the court decides, abortion justice will prevail. And we've been taking care of our people for decades and we'll keep doing it. So the courts are important and they're not going to save us. Sure. My name is Elizabeth Nash, N-A-S-H. 
I work for the Guttmacher Institute doing state stuff. So who do we know here? And I'm here today because people need to be able to make decisions for themselves. We all deserve dignity and respect for how we create our own families. And abortion is part of that. Abortion is healthcare. It's part of being able to decide when to become a parent. And it's about human dignity, human rights, and bodily autonomy. And if you can't trust, you have to be able to trust me to be able to make decisions for myself. I'm Amber Gavin. I'm the Vice President of Advocacy and Operations at A Woman's Choice. We're an independent abortion clinic with clinics in Greensboro, Raleigh, Charlotte, North Carolina, and Jacksonville, Florida. I, I, like I said, I work at clinics in North Carolina and Florida, and we've seen the challenges that pa patients have accessing abortion care, um, including you know 72-hour waiting periods in North Carolina, the tremendous barriers, uh, logistical and financial, to accessing abortion. And I really envision a future where abortion is accessible and affordable. And um, I'm here because, you know, unfortunately people are traveling long distances, like patient in Texas are coming to our Charlotte Clinic, and they shouldn't. And, um, and, and, and a lot of people can't. So um, that's why I'm here today. Yeah. And I know that already a lot of people have to travel to Florida, people in the southeast to get here later in pregnancy. Um, and so the fact that this is a 15-week ban obviously would have a huge effect on that if the Supreme Court upholds it. Absolutely. Um, so I wonder if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, like I said, we're already seeing people traveling. And it... It's devastating, and unfortunately, a lot of folks, especially um, folks who are trying to make ends meet, um, people of color, black folks, indigenous folks, people with disabilities, that's an already, um, they're already facing so many barriers, and it's just being able to travel isn't a privilege that everyone has. Um, and so, and it's, it's just not, when we put bans like this in place, it just makes abortion unacceptable. Is there anything else you want to say just about the rally today, the turnout, how you're feeling? I like to feel hopeful. I, I mean, I think abortion activists are incredible folks, and being around them is a privilege. Sure, my name is Jesse Rosales. I spell that J-E-S-S-Y-R-O-S-A-L-E-S. And I am a California state organizer with URGE, Unite for Reproductive and Gender Equity. I am also an abortion storyteller with We Testify. Great. So tell me why you're here today. Yeah, I am here today on one of the most nerve-wracking days for the reproductive justice movement. I'm here because I'm one of those people who actually struggled to get an abortion. Uh, it took me three months to get an abortion in the state of California. And that whole time of just waiting and like not having control over my body, not being able to plan my family or my future outcome, and just feeling like there was this parasite, truthfully, in my body that was growing and stealing me of my energy, of my joy, and it was incredibly anxiety-inducing. And as I was like overcoming all these like hurdles to and barriers to access abortion, I just felt so scared. I didn't know what to do. I was I was like teetering into like last resort territory and but thankfully I was privileged enough to finally get an abortion uh, in my second trimester. It wasn't ideal for me to have a second trimester abortion, but that's what it was. I don't regret it. I always knew I wanted an abortion and so I'm here because I had an abortion and anyone else who wants an abortion deserves that same right as well. There are a lot of antis here today, um, some saying pretty disparaging things about people who have abortions. Absolutely. Um, so how does it make you feel to get people screaming that today? I mean, I'm a human, you know, like sometimes it hurts and other times I understand that it's like, it comes from ignorance or just like solely religious thoughts, beliefs, banter, but I mean, I heard Kenya Martin speaking earlier, and she said there's nothing Christian about abortion bans, and that is true. This is a humanitarian crisis. The fact that we're forcing people into unwanted pregnancies 
and then forcing them into unwanted families and further marginalizing people into poverty, into, I don't know, it's just like we're just further marginalizing people into having less access and control over their futures. My name is Kimberly Inez McGuire, and I'm the executive director of URGE. I'm here today because young people will not allow this Supreme Court to take away the abortions that belong to us. We know that if this case goes the wrong way because of these Trump-appointed judges, that it will be young people in the South and the Midwest, it will be young trans people, young black people, who will have no choice for how to end a pregnancy. We are here to say that whatever this court decides, we will always have abortions. We will always take care of each other, and we will not stop fighting. And how are you feeling just about the rally today and the turnout? You know, I think, I think context is really important. We work with an organization that builds young people power in the South and the Midwest. And I can tell you that there is a huge crowd of young people in Atlanta, Georgia today. There are young people in Columbus, Ohio today. Yeah, not all of them could get a plane ticket to Washington, D.C. But this movement does not exist in front of this one building. This movement is nationwide. And across the country, young people are mobilizing whether or not they could come to this one rally. If this, if this case goes the wrong way and we lose the abortion access that we need, we are going to do what we have to do to be able to end pregnancies. And that means that some people are going to end their own abortions, and that's okay. And part of the conversation needs to be, what are we doing to support people who are ending their pregnancies, whether that's in a clinic, whether that's that they need a, a ride to another state, or whether they're taking pills and ending a pregnancy on their own. I'm Gerald Hayes, I use she, her pronouns, and I'm the Movement Building Director at If When How Lawyering for Reproductive Justice. Great, and tell me why you're here today. So my work uh, entails working, training and organizing law students, legal fellows, and lawyers in advancement of reproductive justice. And so being at the Supreme Court for oral arguments on a case that could literally change how we access abortion care in this country felt super important um, to, to be down here to make sure that people understood what is at stake, um, in particular for folks on the ground who are already having a hard time accessing abortion care, knowing that, uh, you know, a, a bad decision in this case could put abortion access even further out of reach for those folks. Absolutely, and I know that at If When How you guys do a lot of work around criminalization of pregnancy outcomes, um, and that's certainly a concern if access to abortion is further restricted and more people start to self-manage their abortions. So. We've already seen increases um, in people accessing our helpline, wanting to get more information. One of the things that you know we think it's important to identify is is who is at risk of being further criminalized. Um, we know what types of communities are under surveillance, what types of communities are at risk of, of law enforcement, you know, being more present in their uh, lives and being you know subject to criminalization um, because of their pregnancy outcomes. And so you know we want to support folks, making sure that they have access to information, access to resources, um, and we want to make sure that the, the laws are protecting people's rights and not restricting them. Anything else you want to say about today? Um, just that, you know, this is a really important opportunity to connect with our community, especially coming out of you know, this ongoing pandemic, um, you know, people really wanting to show up for abortion access and really wanting to um, show support for particularly the folks in Jackson, Mississippi on the ground who are, you know, this is their last uh, abortion provider in their entire state and knowing what is at risk for them. Um, so really just wanting to come out and support all of our folks. Thank you so much. Yeah, uh, my name is Josie Pinto. I'm the executive director of the Reproductive Freedom Fund of New Hampshire. Hi, my name is Julie Jenkins, and I am an abortion provider, and I am the Reproductive Health Access Project APC Advanced Practice Clinician Cluster Leader. I'm here because I think we're witnessing uh, an unprecedented moment, an attack on reproductive rights, and I'm here in solidarity with everyone around the country that's going to see the immediate impact. And also representing New Hampshire, which is very much a red state in a sea of blue where we're facing more attacks on abortion rights than ever before. So I'm here to bear witness to this moment. Everything that Josie just said, I totally support. But you know, this is an incredibly important moment. Dobbs is a case that 
very well could overturn Roe, and, and it could not overturn Roe, and it would still have the same effect. And so I think, you know, it's really important that we recognize what is really at stake in this moment. And I, 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 I hope that we are uplifting this message and that we are getting that, that message out because I, I don't think people are, as much as we talk about it and we realize what it, what's going on, um, I, think, I don't think people are as aware as I would like them to be or as I think they should be given how much of this news gets to me. How do you guys feel about the rally today and the large anti-presence that's here? Um, I just think we need to get a lot louder because clearly their voices are incredibly loud and you know we're saying things about how much we love abortion and it's interesting that all they're doing is spewing hate and calling us things like whores. Um, so the contrast is really interesting and I, I'm just struck by just how polarizing this moment is right now. Sure, I'm Amy Hexter Miller, Whole Woman's Health and Whole Woman's Health Alliance. Great, and tell me why you're here today. Oh, I am here because our like very lives are on the line, um, as you can see. Uh, this case has a lot of significance. Um, this is the first time the Supreme Court has really undertaken a restriction on Roe um, in 50 years, um, and um, there's a lot on the line here. Mm -hmm. And I know that because you operate clinics in Texas, and you're yeah. also a lead plaintiff in the case against the Texas near-total abortion ban, this is not the only Supreme Court case you're interested in right, right now. Right. So tell me how things are right now at your clinics in Texas. Sure. So I was just here a month ago uh, for Whole Woman's Health v. Jackson, where the Supreme Court heard our case in a quote-unquote emergency fashion. Uh, I say it with air quotes because um, we still haven't gotten a decision, and it's been over a month. Um, and every day we are turning hundreds of people away. Um, people who deserve access to safe abortion care from trained professionals. Uh, people shouldn't be forced to have to travel um, hundreds of miles and delay what is really essential medical care that has a timely nature, right? Um, and so we've sort of seen what it's going to look like if abortion is further restricted by this court. Um, unfortunately, it's been devastating. Um, and my staff in the clinics have had to turn people away that we are fully committed to helping and fully trained to care for. And that's a cool thing to put a clinic staff person, like a nurse and a medical assistant, in the position of saying no to people um, that they are very committed to caring for. It's, it's been awful. And are Whole Women's Health clinics in other states seeing patients from Texas? Yes. So Whole Women's Health, we have um, clinics in five states. We're also, we offer virtual abortion care where we can. So medication abortion by mail via telemedicine. And we're seeing Texans um, being dispersed all over the country. Um, I also have colleagues calling me from other states. Um, all over the country, people who I know really well who are asking me questions about um, what they can do or can't do for the Texans that are in their clinics, um, trying to figure out how to help people pay for their travel and how to help pay for their abortions because they've had to um, travel all the way across the country. And this is not your first case to come before no. the Supreme Court. No. Of course, the one before was a victory. Right. Um, so tell me how it feels different to be here today than it did back in Cole you know, versus Yeah, what's interesting is like even then people were scared about us challenging the law. Um, people said, oh, it might not be the right time and you're taking too many risks. And I think it's important for us to remember that it's always the right time to do the right thing. And we can't only think about doing the right thing if we're going to win. Um, we have to stand up for what's right. And we have to shine a bright light on these kinds of restrictions and what they do for families and what they do for our communities. Um, and so I'm, of course, super proud that we won. Um, and we won big. Um, and I think we've seen the ripple effect of that win over the last few years in people using the whole woman's health standard now in states all across the country to either block new laws from going into effect or roll back um, things that should no longer be enforced. And so um, I, I'm proud of that, right? And I, I think what we've seen since the whole woman's health victory is actually a real turn from the anti-abortion folks away from pretending they had women's health and safety in mind and now they're turning towards the fetus and like really trying to ignore where a pregnancy 
is located and, and whose rights are, are at stake um, within this obsession with the fetus with all these restrictions. And that's that's because of Whole Woman's Health. That's because of the victory. And so, um, you know, it remains to be seen um, what kind of ground they're going to win. Um, the court is very different than it was when we were in front of it um, six years ago. Um, but the general public is no different. The vast majority of people, um, by far and away, support access to abortion rights in this country. And we can't let our, our beliefs and our rights be drowned out by these loud, loud folks with megaphones um, who are on the street today. Last week, Whole Woman's Health announced that all of the abortions it provides in Texas will be free. The next person I ran into was Kathleen Pittman of Hope Medical Group for Women, I just wanted to point out here that Hope Medical is the clinic represented in the Supreme Court case known as June Medical Services versus Russo. This case was decided in 2020, and the Supreme Court surprised a lot of people by striking down a Louisiana anti-abortion law, despite what was already then a 5-4 conservative majority. So Kathleen is another Supreme Court veteran. Again, to learn more about that case, Listen back to episode 12. I'm Kathleen Pittman. I'm the administrator at Hope Medical Group for Women in Shreveport. And I'm going to step around so the sun's not my eyes. Sure, sure. <laughs> um, so you have been here before? Been here, done that. Um, yes, it's not even been two years since we had to come for our admitting privileges. We won. Um, We are still, at this point, hoping for some decent news out of the Texas case, the SB8. My clinic is totally inundated with patients coming across the border. I mean, it is, my staff is exhausted. We are scheduling way out. Women are having terminations a lot farther into the pregnancy than they originally wanted or intended, simply because of lack of access right now. So every day I wake up thinking, well, maybe we'll get some good news out of Texas or for Texas. So far, that hasn't happened. And your case was another case that a lot of people were concerned that the Supreme Court even took that up, right? Absolutely. As a matter of fact, I think we were the last oral arguments heard in person before the big shutdown with the pandemic. And But even then, I mean, I was nervous because so much was on the line and I felt like, you know, because our clinic was the plaintiff in that case, you know, was it something we could have avoided? Were we making matters worse? But frankly, at the time, we had no choice. I mean, it was going to literally shut down virtually all the clinics in Louisiana, so we had to press forward. And how do you feel just about the rally today, about the mood out here? Um, I'm grateful for everybody that's come out today. I'm nervous about the outcome of this case. Um, I think we'll be okay. I hope we'll be okay. I keep telling myself we have right on our side. So, you know, we should be okay. Thank you so much. Is there anything you can tell me your name and what you do? Uh, yeah, my name is Jacqueline Ayers, and I'm the Senior Vice President for Policy Campaigns and Advocacy with Planned Parenthood Federation of America. And uh, use she, her pronouns. Great. And tell me why you're here today. Uh, Yeah, we're here today because there is everything is on the line with Roe v. Wade. The Supreme Court is having opportunity to hear oral arguments in in a decision that's already been decided for over 50 years. Um, So this is a question of whether or not 36 million people across the country could lose access to care. And it's why you see so many people who are here today. And not just in the Supreme Court. We are all over this country. People are marching today. And they won't stop marching uh, until we make sure that we protect people's access to abortion. Great. Anything else you want and what you do? I'm Tammy Kromenacher. I'm the clinic director at Red River Women's Clinic in Fargo, North Dakota. Which is the only abortion clinic in North Dakota. We are the only abortion clinic in North Dakota. We serve patients from North Dakota, South Dakota, and Northwestern Minnesota. I'm here because, um, you know, Roe v. Wade is under threat and North Dakota has a trigger ban. So if Roe v. Wade is overturned, within 30 days, abortion becomes illegal in the state of North Dakota. And three states that we serve and all of the patients who need our care uh, would have to, if they have the privilege, travel out of state. And if they don't have that privilege, it's going to leave people behind and they are going to have to continue pregnancies that they were not prepared for. Yeah, and I guess they would have to travel Minnesota, Colorado. 
The closest places are Minnesota, which is for patients who live on the far eastern edge of North Dakota by Fargo, you know, four hours. But for patients who live in central or western North Dakota, they already drive five to six hours to come to our clinic. And then you add another three to four hours on. So they're traveling 10 hours. Um, there's clinics in Montana. Uh, I don't know what the state of Montana has. I think they might have a trigger ban. So it would decimate abortion access in the north midwestern part of the United States. And can you just say a little bit about the unique challenges that you face as an independent clinic? Sure, as an independent clinic, you know, we are locally owned and operated. We do not have a huge, you know, I'm the IT department. I'm the um, person who takes on the litigation and is the representative. Um, I'm the person who has to go to uh, the Capitol to testify. We don't have all these, you know, departments. It's literally us. Um, it's literally me and my staff. I work with patients every week. I'm on the front lines. I'm touching patients, and I'm, um, you know, doing all of those other things. So we have limited resources. Um, we fly under the radar. People don't understand that independent clinics like Red River Women's Clinic in Fargo are holding the line for abortion access in some of the most hostile states in the U.S. Tell me your name and what you do. Um, my name is Carly Van Zyl and I am with Youth Advocacy. I'm part of the ECHO program, educating communities around HIV organizing and um, Youth Testify. Oh, great. And tell me why you're here today. Um, I'm here today because one, I wanted to share my story and it's also World AIDS Day so both of those things are very important to me. Storytelling and making sure that no one ever feels ashamed because for the longest time I was and it held me down for so long. It's my first ever rally, so. Oh, really? Yeah. That's exciting. And I was the second speaker, so I was like freaking out a little. Wow. <laughs> so tell me what you spoke about a little bit and how it felt to be up there. Um, well, the adrenaline definitely kicked in, but I spoke about, you know, having reprodu keeping reproductive rights and kind of just basically my story about how when I was diagnosed with HIV and had my abortion, I was so scared and I don't want anybody else to feel that way. So I just kind of shared my story so that, you know, for the people who don't have a voice or don't have the ability to speak out, that we still have their back. Mm -hmm. There's your name and what you do. Yeah, my name is Erin Grant, E-R-I-N-G-R-A-N-T. I use they and them pronouns, and I'm the deputy director for the Abortion Care Network. I'm here today because the Supreme Court has taken up a case um, about abortion rights, but this is actually the third one that they're hearing this year. And so independent abortion providers are all involved in these cases. Not only do they provide care, but they also protect the legal access for patients to be able to get abortions in this country. And how do you feel about the rally today, the turnout, the environment out here? I always am proud to be a part of the movement for reproductive justice. Um, I'm loving our positivity. I'm loving the colors. I love, like, I had an abortion sign, deliberate abortion. I feel like it's such a positive environment to be in to remind us that we're paying attention to voting rights. It's HIV World AIDS Day. And so we're here just to celebrate the fact that, you know, human rights is popular and we're going to win. So. Um, I'm feeling pretty positive. I'm loving the amount of uh, diversity in speakers, um, knowing that Indigenous Women's Rising was speaking, funds are speaking, patients are speaking, uh, our friends from Mississippi, our friends from the South are speaking, reverends, rabbis. Um, someone that you know has had an abortion, and that includes religious leaders and clinic workers, and so um, it's not the easiest day to come together, but it's definitely filled with a lot of positivity. Yeah. Is there anything yeah. in the name of your church? Amanda Hambrick Ashcraft, Middle Collegiate Church, New York City. Um, so I am an ordained Baptist minister, and I'm here because I believe that religion has no place to restrict anyone's healthcare decisions or decisions about their body. Um, and I want to remind people that there have been religious leaders who have been pro-abortion um, for a long time. This isn't a new thing and it's not a small thing. There are progressive people of faith um, who are not 
against abortions. We're here, 59% of Christians, specifically in a recent poll, do not want to overturn Roe. Uh, so it's important that we show up and remind the world that there are people of faith who are for um, abortion access for all, because we understand all the intersections of where this conversation lies, which include um, race and class and gender. Um, and I understand God to be one who brings a desire into all those intersections as well. This is not a single issue as much as the GOP wants to make it, um, and it has become a wedge issue. This is about all the ways we are either advocating for the flourishing of life in all its forms or we're not. I am by no means a photojournalist, but if you'd like to see some of the photos I took at the rally, they're on our website. That's a podcastaboutabortion.com. So that's what was happening outside the court. As I said, not a lot of people were allowed inside, but I did get to talk to someone who was there. My name is Hillary Schneller. I'm a senior staff attorney at the Center for Reproductive Rights, and I'm co-lead counsel on the Jackson Women's Health case. So let's review. How did this case end up in front of the Supreme Court? So this 15-week ban was passed by the state of Mississippi in March of 2018. It went into effect the day the governor signed it, which is somewhat unusual. We challenged it that same day on behalf of Jackson Women's Health, the last abortion clinic in the state, and immediately, you know, the next day got the law blocked because a 15-week ban on abortion clearly violates 50 years of Supreme Court precedent saying that states cannot prohibit abortion before viability or right every individual gets to make this decision about whether to continue a pre-viability pregnancy. You know, the case was heard by the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, which covers Texas, Mississippi, and Louisiana. Fifth Circuit affirmed the district court struck the law down, which again is often not something you hear about the Fifth Circuit in our cases, and in the state of Mississippi asked the Supreme Court to review it. And what happens during oral arguments anyway? Who talks and in what order? So Scott Stewart, the Solicitor General for the state of Mississippi, went first. He had brought with him Lynn Fitch, the Attorney General of Mississippi. Um, on our side, Julie Rickleman, our Senior Director of Litigation at the Center, argued after General Stewart. And following Julie was Elizabeth Prelogger, the Solicitor General for the United States. And then General Stewart got a final short rebuttal. And then the format this time, because, of, again, they've made some adjustments due to COVID, but there's sort of a free-for-all time when the justices ask questions, and then they conclude by sort of doing an anything else from each justice in seniority order. Since I know that probably not Everyone wants to listen to all of the oral argument audio. I asked Hillary to summarize the center's main arguments against this 15-week abortion ban. So our arguments all along have been, you know, pretty straightforwardly that this violates 50 years of precedent. And, you know, we made those arguments before the Supreme Court in addition to focusing on, you know, the really devastating consequences for overruling that 50 years of precedent both Roe and the 1992 decision in Casey, which reaffirmed this core right. There's a reason this has been reaffirmed time and again, because it is so fundamental to everyone's life just to be able to make the life-altering decision about whether to continue a pregnancy and that that decision should remain with each person and not the government. So, you know, Julie Rickleman on our side and the Solicitor General for the United States talked about the importance for gender equality that this right has had for 50 years and the real consequences of rolling back those rights for, for pregnant people should, should the court uphold this law. And what about the other side, the state of Mississippi? What were they arguing? I mean, they've made a very radical request to the court to overturn these landmark decisions. 
but they haven't made any argument. The court hasn't sort of heard and considered and rejected before. So mostly what they are lodging is disagreement with those decisions. Um, You heard some of that in the questioning with the justices, like, have you really come to us with anything new? And, you know, the state of Mississippi really hasn't because this question about whether the court should stand by the right to abortion has been presented and, and rejected by the court a number of times. The other thing I'll say is just it's, you know, a pretty disturbing view of the world that their arguments just don't include, you know, pregnant people and an individual's right to make these fundamental decisions. You know, they were really focusing on let's return this issue to, you know, states, to state legislatures, to the quote people, as if pregnant people aren't included in that group of people who should be making decisions about their own lives. Um, So it just, you know, hearing it out loud in a courtroom, I think, reinforced how pretty disturbing the view of the world is. I mean, they're being far more honest, I guess, about what they've been doing and chipping away the right for so long. Now they're really coming out with the the radical request that has been behind all of the restrictions. Now, Jackson Women's Health only provides abortions up until 16 weeks. So some people have said, well, then what's the big deal with banning abortion at 15 weeks? Would it really affect that many people? For folks who need abortions after 15 weeks, this is as good as a complete ban for them because it doesn't matter that there was abortion available earlier. They couldn't access it then, right? There are always reasons people are accessing abortion after 15 weeks because they were on contraception. They didn't realize they were pregnant. They were facing obstacles to accessing abortion earlier. But yes, the second point is certainly that it is not only about this 15-week ban. It has implications for the whole country. To learn more about why people have abortions after 15 weeks, go back and listen to episode four if you haven't already. And remember, in Roe v. Wade, the Supreme Court held that abortion must be legal up until the point of fetal viability. So any decision allowing this 15-week ban to stand is a reversal of Roe, whether the Supreme Court says that explicitly or not. And as Hillary said, A decision like that affects the entire country, not just Mississippi. So if the court upholds this Mississippi ban and overturns Roe, half the states in the country are poised to ban abortion completely. There are already a number of states that have passed bans and there are court orders blocking those laws from being in effect. So, you know, we will really see a lot of chaos and harm The the bit of which we've seen in Texas, which has been a human rights violation in one state that has had ripple effects across the whole country. So the sort of devastation of overturning Roe would exponentially magnify the harm and chaos that we have seen in Texas, you know, across the country. So the stakes are really could not be higher. In all likelihood, we won't know the outcome of this case until June. That's when the Supreme Court typically releases its decisions in big cases like this one. Though, technically, it could come at any time. There's one more thing I want to touch on in this episode, and that's the crucial role of independent abortion clinics like Jackson Women's Health Organization. We've heard from the owners and staff of numerous independent clinics on the show, several in this episode alone. But we haven't talked very much about the important things that they do. Basically, an independent clinic is one that's not affiliated with Planned Parenthood. And why does that matter? Well, for one thing, To a lot of people, the name Planned Parenthood is synonymous with abortion, right? But actually, three out of every five abortions in the U.S. are provided by independent clinics. And did you know that not every Planned Parenthood location provides abortion services? You know, with Mississippi being um, at the forefront of attention right now, that's a prime example where, you know, there is that 
one independent provider of abortion care in Mississippi, and there is a Planned Parenthood there that does not provide abortion care and has not. So that is very important for the community to know and understand that Planned Parenthood does many other things besides abortion care. And their assumption cannot be made that when they need abortion care in their community, you know, that the Planned Parenthood is where they can get it. That's Dr. Deshaun Taylor, an OBGYN, family planning specialist, and owner of the independent clinic Desert Star Family Planning in Phoenix, Arizona. I spoke with her about a recent report from Abortion Care Network, an association of independent abortion providers. The report shows that independent clinics occupy a crucial role in the abortion access landscape. For example, in a lot of the states that are most hostile to abortion rights, it's independent clinics that are holding the line. Currently, six states have only one brick-and-mortar abortion clinic left. In four of those six states, that one clinic is independent. For people who need abortions later in pregnancy, independent clinics are particularly vital. 60% of all clinics that provide abortion care after the first trimester are independent. And the farther into pregnancy you go, the more that percentage grows. 79% of clinics that provide care at or after 22 weeks are independent. And 100% of the clinics that provide care at or after 26 weeks are independent. Finally, 71% of independent clinics offer both medication and in-clinic abortion care, compared to only 49% of Planned Parenthood locations. But independent clinics face unique challenges. And Dr. Taylor knows all about this. She was actually the medical director for Planned Parenthood Arizona for about three and a half years before she opened her own clinic. So she's practiced in both settings. What's really nice about independent abortion clinics is that they really have their finger on the pulse of the community. And most independent abortion clinics are providing more to their communities above and beyond abortion care. We also don't have, we're not as highly resourced from a standpoint of Planned Parenthood having affiliates and a fundraising machine and a larger donor pool and those type of things, a ready group of volunteers to escort people into the clinic. And so there's just this whole kind of um, machine. It's the only way I can think of it. I can't think of a better word. There's this whole uh, thing that, that Planned Parenthood has that gives it a bit more resilience to kind of bounce back from some of these attacks. And so because generally independent um, abortion clinics are singly owned, maybe a nonprofit, but generally smaller operations, it's difficult to withstand some of, of the restrictions. With all of these things, it really is a difficult situation for independent abortion clinics to be in, and that's why we see closures. 113 independent clinics have closed since 2016, with 20 closures this year alone. I asked Dr. Taylor to give us an example of the sort of regulation that makes it really difficult to keep a clinic open. One really big thing here in Arizona is that if you perform five or more abortions, then you have to go on the record with Arizona as being an abortion clinic. And so there's a license, there's a licensing fee that then puts you in play for all the regulatory issues, the targeted restrictions against abortion providers, walk-up inspections without any notice. It just really takes you to a different level of scrutiny. Whereas otherwise, I would just with my license be able to just have my clinic open. Of course, Planned Parenthood clinics face these same restrictions, but they have more infrastructure in place to help them survive. I have this conversation more and more with people who would generally donate to Planned Parenthood, and they want me to tell them what's the difference. And honestly, I don't like to 
try to do head to head comparisons because in different places, it looks different. Like here, you know, when I was at Planned Parenthood and I am a later abortion provider, then Planned Parenthood provided later abortions up to the legal limit of the state. Now they don't. So, I mean, some of this is, it, you know, it's kind of changes over time. But I will say that what I find to be the most important reason for someone to support independent abortion clinics is because really the majority of us are just a small, close-knit team of people who are from the community and care about the community. And we we are really boots on the ground and listening and being able and nimble enough to respond to community needs. Not all independent clinics accept donations, but some do. If you'd like to learn more about the independent clinics in your community and how you can support them, the Abortion Care Network is a good place to start. I'll link to their website in the show notes. Access is produced by me, Garnet Henderson. Our logo is by Kate Ryan, and our theme music is by Lily Sloan. Many thanks to today's guests and everyone who spoke to me in D.C. So nice to see your faces in real life. If you like this show, I am asking you to email it or text it or share it in some other way right now. Right now. Thank you. And remember, you can support the show by buying merch or donating as well. Those links are in the show notes. If you have a story you'd like to share, you can email me at accesspodcast at protonmail.com. Don't forget to subscribe to Access wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating or review. That really does help. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at AccessPod. A full transcript of this episode is available on our website, apodcastaboutabortion.com. <laughs>